Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the place where the explicit language warning goes, but on this podcast, there is none, but I still have to say it. Otherwise, it could be claimed under the laws of eminent domain. It's Wednesday, October 5th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm here with your Georgia Senate analysis. Yesterday, we've reported, as the Daily Beast exposed, that Herschel Walker once paid for an abortion in 2009. He denies it, not well, on Sean Hannity, quickly shifting to, this just shows how much they hate me and my family. And by the way, one of his prominent family members, his son Christian, broke with Herschel saying, we don't support you, dad. All you want to do is abuse us and bang women. Now, the smart money on this is somehow some bit of sophistication that it won't change things. If you're a step and a half outside of Georgia or the normal political discourse, you might be saying, wait a minute, how could this not hurt a candidate's chances? A pro-life candidate paying for abortion. Well, the thinking goes that so much is already baked in the cake when it comes to the Georgia election that yeah, even this scandal won't hurt him. In fact, Nathaniel Rakich, writing in 538, goes so far as to argue it's not a scandal. It doesn't meet the site's definition of a scandal. As our forecast defines it, he says, a scandal is a credible accusation of criminal or ethical wrongdoing. And this wasn't criminal, except now it is or will be going forward. An abortion under the circumstances that Herschel Walker paid for it for this woman in Georgia would be illegal. So Unlike I didn't smoke marijuana now being a vestige of decriminalization around that issue, since abortion has been recriminalized, yeah, it might actually be the definition of a scandal. As it will play out among the folk, a folk scandal, yeah, among Republican Christian voters, they do not like when their candidate pays for an abortion. Now, I know the sophisticated way of looking at elections or the faux sophisticated way is that These MAGA people, they just can't be convinced by objective evidence, or there are people who, because they love Herschel Walker and his football playing career, will vote for him no matter what. There are, but we're only asking is the question, are those people the majority of Georgians? Arguing for, yeah, they may be, is the fact that it is probably a generally pro-Republican year, and Georgia is pro-Republican. But... It's not so Republican as to have voted for Donald Trump in 2020 or to have reelected David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler, two candidates who are just much better in terms of being actual candidates to say nothing of politicians than Herschel Walker. Donald Trump's better at being a candidate and a politician than Herschel Walker. I mean, Herschel Walker doesn't have many of the selling points of Donald Trump. He's not a so-called successful businessman, not on the level that Donald Trump is or purports to be, or more relevantly, that his voters think him to be. Also, Donald Trump has not been credibly or even, I don't think, incredibly linked to having fathered many children out of wedlock, Herschel Walker has. The idea that this won't hurt Herschel Walker because Georgians just aren't open to new evidence. I mean, it may be true, but it's treating Georgia as a state different from, say, Alabama, which didn't vote for Roy Moore when evidence was revealed that 
He was engaged in pedophilia, shall we say. Also, Herschel Walker's big defense of this isn't that, oh, who cares, or it wasn't a scandal. It's, I didn't do it. And since there is a woman out there who knows or alleges quite credibly that Herschel Walker did in fact pay for her abortion and is coming forward now because she's motivated by the issue of illegalizing abortion and the threat that Herschel Walker could be a vote in that direction. Perhaps she will just say, here I am. This is my face. Here are the pictures. I'm here to testify that he did do it. It's a huge risk. And I think it's a risk that will and can have effects in the Georgia Senate race. So again, I know there's no polling on this. I know the sophisticates are saying, yeah, life and facts just don't matter. I think what those people are doing is talking their neuroses instead of talking the evidence. We haven't had a poll. When we do, I bet Raphael Warnock, as the one candidate who hasn't fathered multiple children out of wedlock, who hasn't paid for an abortion when claiming to be against abortion, has never held a gun to women's heads, has never had a son of his disavow him publicly, a son who's affiliated with MAGA. I bet that guy benefits slightly in the polls. And it just might translate to the actual poll on November 8th. On the show today, I spiel about Aaron Judge and 62 and those other guys who hit more, but we don't want to talk about. But first... We've created conflicts about almost everything. Fossil fuels versus renewable energy is a good example. But according to my next guest, those conflict-laden binaries are just kind of dumb. Salim Ali is the Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Energy and the Environment at the University of Delaware. And he is the author of Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define Human Life. Professor Ali, up next. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Salim H. Ali is a true citizen of the world, born in America, moved to Pakistan, lived in Australia. Of course, a guy like this is going to end up in Delaware, where he is the Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Energy and the Environment at the University of Delaware. He is also a National Geographic Explorer, which immediately evokes to me the theme song. And so we play Salim Ali onto the gist to talk about his new book, Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define Human Life. Welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Mike. There are so many strands and we get to see your thinking in this book. And it seems to me that the challenge was one of convergence. You had been drawing from so many other thinkers and so many other disciplines, and it seemed like you were just sparking with ideas, but how to synthesize them into a coherent thesis. So how do you give your, give me a self-assessment of how you did with that and what is the thesis? Yes. So, you know, my own academic journey has been very eclectic. I started off as a chemistry major and I got my bachelor's in chemistry, which I very much enjoyed. But then I moved more towards the 
social sciences. So I got a master's in environmental studies, and then my PhD is in environmental planning. So, you know, planning is a very eclectic field as well by uh, definition, because you're planning around uh, issues of infrastructure development. You need to know the engineering, you need to know the science, but you also need to know the community conflicts and how people are going to uh, react to what you propose. So um, the book has been, in, ma in many ways, uh, a culmination of that journey over the past 20 years in my uh, professional work and also my teaching. You know, my, my first uh, day job is teaching, and I very much value teaching in a state university where we cater to a, a wide demographic. And so um, the book came together because I felt that there was not really any uh, good manuscript which covered sustainability issues from a complex systems perspective, bringing in natural science and social science, but also being accessible. Yes. So it was all of these factors. So some of the books which try to do that, are they dumb it down too much and they go into cliches and there are others which are just too focused. So um, that's the goal of the book. And I use the, the paradigm of order because it's one which appeals to both the natural and social sciences. Like in politics, we talk about, you know, new world order. And uh, in, in natural sciences, we talk about natural order. So the book tries to make the connections between natural, social, and political order. Right. And what I glean from the book is that even though there is such a thing as order and our conception of it changes over time, it's not that order doesn't exist. It's just that we as humans so often make mistakes about order or impose our need for order on what is a chaotic and necessarily chaotic system. And it leads us to make mistakes. Yes, absolutely. So the human brain requires order to make sense of the world. And what that often means is we simplify things too much in order to make sense of them. But uh, at the same time, if we didn't do that, we would be paralyzed. So the book grapples with also this tension between whether order is a normative uh, good or whether order needs to be considered in a, in a much more nuanced way. Um, for example, prejudice. You know, prejudice is an example of of the human brain trying to make order uh, out of something which shouldn't necessarily be ordered. So you get what, you know, in natural systems we call positive assortative mating, that people tend to marry people who look like them. Uh, and that has been a recurring occurrence. Uh, but then there is the counter side to that, that genetically, of course, you want to have more diversity and genetic diversity promotes resilience in systems. But uh, when you have cultural differences, there is going to be some tension often because you have to go through that process of conflict often to find convergence. And people want to take a shortcut to that. Right. And that's another theme of your book, that there is going to be tension and conflict, we hope, in the short term, and that humans aren't good at it, and we make some poor decisions in terms of our long-term survival because of our discomfort with tension in the short term. Yes, absolutely. And what I try to do in the book is also provide sort of the foundational knowledge about those kinds of processes so, for example, if uh, you're you're going to consider like what happens in um, 
a stampede. You know, a stampede is in fact a phenomenon, it's a social phenomenon, but it has its origins in the same kind of natural laws that govern particles and quantum uh, principles because it's the way in which you get a certain kind of attractor behavior. You know, people start to see what others are doing and you, you kind of move in that direction and that leads to a kind of tipping point. And that tipping point then leads to catastrophe. So, you know, the same kind of processes you do find in natural science systems too. And you, you can... Um, have an understanding of those better if you have that foundational learning. What about harnessing a stampede for good? Uh, there mm -hmm. are big changes of mind that we, I, th I would say that it would be beneficial for society to have if we were, for instance, there was a time not too long ago when the majority of people did not believe that climate change had human causes, and now they do. And some of that is because of careful education, but a lot of that is probably because of the stampede effect you talk about. Is that yeah. okay to harness the stampede if we're actually <laughs> stampeding towards a better place than where we started? Yes, it is okay, though I would have a proviso that in science, you always have this imperative to look for new data and always question the orthodoxy. And there is a phenomenon called groupthink, yeah. which can take over then. And then you can sometimes, even scientists are just as culpable of that. And then you can prevent that critical thinking that should always be part of that process. And, it, and that tension, as I was saying, between order and chaos, you know, that that's helpful because if you then say okay we've gone up the tipping point yes climate change the evidence is absolutely incontrovertible that there is climate change that is being uh, caused largely by human activities but then what do we do about it that's where i tend to get into a uh, series of concerns about groupthink so for example we talked about you know issues like nuclear energy you know there was a groupthink phenomenon with reference to opposition to nuclear power. And now it has come back to haunt us as we're trying to address climate change because that group think and panic essentially, you know, so you had a stampede kind of effect after Fukushima, everyone panicked. The Germans decided they're not going to have any nuclear power plants. And now they're in a real pickle because either they're going to have to rely on uh, gas from Russia or they're going to have unaffordable energy uh, and I mean, actually not even have baseload power uh, unless they're figuring out some other mechanism. So, uh, you know, that's the, the, the other side of the story that we have to be careful of with reference to climate change. So we should always be dictated by the data. We should make sure that the precautionary principle doesn't paralyze us in terms of the decisions we make. Uh, and so that's, that's the other side we should be careful of. What part of the mix, what percentage, express it however you will, do you think nuclear energy will play in providing our energy in the future to deliver us from the consequences of climate change and global warming? Well, I mean, it's a political decision as to how much people are going to be willing to invest in the next generation of nuclear power generation, which has been stymied. You know, we, we were still working largely with uh, 50, 60 year old technologies in the, the old uh, nuclear fission power plant. So there, there are two sides to it. There's the, the next generation of breeder reactors with fission, and then there's nuclear fusion also, 
Uh, and there are some, um, you know, amazing startup companies. Like uh, I was just at an MIT alumni event where I found out that there's a Commonwealth Fusion, small startup company in Cambridge, uh, uh, you know, suburbs of Massachusetts, which is starting um, nuclear fusion at a much more affordable level than the massive, you know, government uh, funded uh, ITER project in France where they're trying to do a prototype of nuclear fusion. Uh, I mean, that's how the sun generates its energy, right, is through nuclear fusion reactions. And so that is something to consider in the next, you know, 30 to 40 years. Uh, but I don't want to make a supposition that it's going to be the majority right. power generation. And I, I would hope that we diversify. You know, there is no silver bullet, but nuclear should be part of the mix in certain contexts. Uh, and uh, it requires investment, but we should continue with wind, with wind and solar and other forms for distributed power, especially in rural areas. They make a lot of sense. I don't think they make a lot of sense for massive grid electricity at the level that we will need for, you know, large demographics. But uh, but they should be part of the equation. Well, to set the baseline, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, says in order to get to net zero by 2050, we need to double nuclear capacity, but it's still 90% of our energy will be met by non-nuclear uh, providers. You talked about maybe we could develop a new generation of breeder reactors. Right now, nuclear energy is much more expensive yeah. than coal and, you know, even much, much more expensive than solar and uh, wind. So I just read Farhad Manju writing in the New York Times saying that alone, the expense of it really damns it. But I wonder no, if No, but it's, you know, just on yeah. the expense part, Mike, if I may, you know, th that is in many ways a specious argument because the expense is largely it's the capital cost of the construction uh, for the new power plants. First of all, we're talking about extending the life of existing ones is one, which is not that expensive. Mm -hmm. and secondly, if you are going to build the new ones if with the new technologies, it's a totally different ballgame. So the, the opponents of uh, you know nuclear, they keep bringing up these errant economic data, which is a problem. And I'm not pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear. I'm just saying, don't be dogmatic <laughs> and don't use science and data just to make your own point. Uh, and that's unfortunately what's happened with nuclear power. Yeah, I also think something that's going on as part of the cost is all the opposition to nuclear power raises the costs. It's like death penalty yeah. opponents, of which I am one, make it so hard to execute a person that an argument against the death penalty becomes, well, it costs millions of dollars and takes dozens of years. Yes, that's because of your opposition. Exactly. Yep. And, and this kind of opposition culture uh, you know, is also a challenge. I mean, I have uh, I have been a card carrying environmentalist, you know, since my teenage days. But I am really concerned about this kind of nihilism that has come about now, where it's not just on this. There's there's opposition to solar power. There's Me opposition too, yeah. to wind power. There's opposition. I mean, this kind of sense of okay, we just have to. And at one level, I, I think we should reduce consumption, but we have to be practical. You know, I come from a developing country, Pakistan originally, with 240 million people. You can't just tell them don't consume more. You can't just wish away people into oblivion. So there is going to be more consumption. So we have to figure out some way, especially for the developing world, to do it in a constructive form. Yes, we should reduce consumption in the developed world. We should be, make things more efficient. We should have a circular economy. But it's not going to solve the problem. The data is very clear, even with the population stabilizing. 
Yeah, and I think the nihilism shows up in other ways. It expresses itself as a meme online, the everything is fine with the dog on fire, or just <laughs> statements like the world is on fire. And it becomes a shortcut for actually really thinking and knowing a lot. You could just say, oh, we're all doomed. And then you get this air of sophistication that I guess is a little bit like social currency within your group, but it's not exactly about solving a problem. Then again, you understand the motivation of humans. A lot of people who maybe identify themselves vaguely as uh, environmentalists or certainly hate climate deniers. Maybe the antipathy towards climate deniers is the thing they feel the most strongly. Maybe they don't feel empowered to actually be part of the solution and really weigh the costs and benefits of nuclear and fracking. Yeah, I mean, I think the environmentalist original concern was a valid one. They were concerned about complacence, that if we are if we are just going to go towards like adaptation of climate change, people are not going to deal with the mitigation problem. But um, I think we are able to multitask. Uh, we have the computational ability. We have the the know-how. And now we, we really need to think about an adaptive future uh, with reference to climate change. You know, historic, I serve on two UN panels and historically the UN uh, related agencies have funded mitigation like 90% out of the total climate change um, expenditures. Uh, and now in the last three, four years, we are seeing a shift more towards adaptation funding finally, because, you know, that is pragmatically what we will need to do, especially with reference to sea level rise and uh, in areas in coastal areas. You're, you are not going to convince the Florida residents to engage in mitigation uh, you're going to have to make them adapt at some levels because otherwise they're really uh, in uh, they're, they're just not going to be able to have any kind of coastal uh, economy there. So I think those are the ways in which we need to pragmatically move forward. Right. I do think there is a tension. Um, there doesn't have to be, but I think in practical terms, there is a tension between getting people to do something and convincing people that something can be done. So it does seem that the message is, this is so much worse than you ever thought. And that message is being communicated to convince people that we have to do something. But the message, it's very hard to dial that message exactly so people don't tip over into the nihilism. So this is yeah. so much worse than you thought becomes, oh, what's the point of doing anything? And it's a very hard sweet spot to communicate, though this is so much worse than you may have thought, there are absolutely adaptive things that we can do. And I don't know if humans are great at, you know, existing in that nuanced space. They're not. And I mean, this is where, you know, some of the people who are um, much more what they call eco-modernists also share the blame because they make fun of the environmentalists. They chide them. You know, people like Michael Schellenberger or Bjorn Lomborg, even when they talk a lot of sense, they chide them and they ridicule them and they don't understand like compassionately, like where are they coming from? Because if someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, one should admire her passion. I don't agree with, I have you know, actually met her in Madrid at one of the climate change meetings. Amazing, you know, what sacrifices her family have undertaken. You know, they're having to live under death threats and all. So my heart goes out to them. I don't agree with them. So you, sh you work with them in a, at a human level, trying to convince people rather than having this very acrid conversation that, oh, right. you know, they are completely off the wall and so on. And right, but to interrupt, but, the, but the, mm -hmm. uh, the, let's put aside Greta. I, I think mm -hmm. she's sincere. 
the system that mm-hmm. you are operating within has as its goals, how do we you know, save the planet and solve climate change? Perhaps Lundborg and Schellenberger are actually competing in different systems where the game is, how do we get attention and have a good, sustainable life for ourselves by being the leading voices in this movement? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they recognize that that's the way in which you're able to get attention, especially in the media. Uh, But I think it creates more heat than light, you know. And so that's, for me, part of the goal of writing this book is hopefully to create more light than heat. Uh, Even if it doesn't sell as much as those books, I think if it can make an impact in the particular circles of influence, Uh, That's what matters. And I'm actually donating all the royalties for environmental education programs because that's what my calling is. I'm an educator. And if this book can contribute in that way, uh, especially in the developing world, uh, I would like that we create, we move away from what I call environmental awareness to environmental literacy. We've got plenty of awareness, but I don't think we really have much environmental literacy. Yeah. So uh, awareness is, would you say that awareness is the first goal or sometimes awareness is not what we should be pursuing at all? I guess you can't be literate yeah. unless you're aware, yeah. but... Yeah, but, you know, it goes back to Alexander Pope's famous essay on criticism. He said, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pyrian spring. It shallow drafts intoxicate the brain, but drinking largely sobers us again. And so, you know, that's what we're at. We, we get intoxicated with little learning. Salim H. Ali is a professor of energy and the environment at the University of Delaware. He's a National Geographic explorer. He is the author, most recently, of Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define Human Life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel. For the 62nd time in a single season, a ball propelled from the bat of Yankee slugger Aaron Judge landed over the outfield wall and this time into the record books. I think I think there were 12 cliches in that sentence, but this is transcendent. Here's the Yes Network with the call. Except for that entire other half of baseball teams known as the National League, no one has hit more home runs in a single season than Aaron Judge. So if you follow baseball, you know why there is an emphasis on judges being the American League king. It's not like we do this in other sports. We don't say, if you don't count Wayne Gretzky as the single season goal leader, Mario Lemieux has the most goals ever for an Eastern Conference team. 
or, you know, not counting Franklin Delano Roosevelt or his entire party, George W. Bush is tied for the lead in most years served in the presidency and most years by a Republican. The three players with more single-season home runs all took, colloquially, though not pharmaceutically accurately, steroids. More accurately, but also more vaguely, we say they took PEDs, performance-enhancing drugs. And we just don't say it, we can prove it. This leads us to the issue of, well, how to properly say it, how to express judges' accomplishment in light of those that engage in chicanery beforehand. Sports talk radio or fiery opinion writers can just call those guys cheaters or shameful roid boys or whatever they want to say. But when you're talking about accurate, accountable, mainstream media, the question is how accurately and politely should you put the judge accomplishments in context? NPR went with this. Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and Mark McGuire all had National League seasons where they hit more than 62, but all three were linked to banned drugs. Indeed, they were. And here's the linkage for number one and two on that list. They admitted to taking banned drugs. I actually used to have this fight with NPR editors who were so cautious about not asserting that Barry Bonds took banned substances, except I pointed out Barry Bonds admits to having taken banned substances. He admits to it under oath and in interviews and on the public record. What he was saying then, what he was admitting to was he took a substance made by his uh, pharmacist, his private label pharmacist, and the substance was called the clear. There was another one called the cream, and he didn't know there were illegal substances, but there were illegal substances. But we could just stop right there and say Aaron Judge hit 62. The all-time record is held by Barry Bonds with 73, but he admits to having taken banned and actually technically illegal drugs to aid his performance. We don't even need to get into the fact that there's tons of proof that he also quite knowingly took illegal and banned substances. We don't even have to get into the fact that he was literally convicted in a criminal trial for lying under oath about taking illegal and banned substances. He admits it. Mark McGuire admits it. McGuire cried and apologized in an AP interview a dozen years ago. I mean, uh, all I want to do is come clean. I've been wanting to come clean ever since 2005. And, you know, I didn't know where, when, or how. Uh, just been holding this in. <laughs> And each of Paul Bunyan's mighty tears fell from his face, creating a lake, which we call today Huron, superior, eerie, and the like. Sammy Sosa never admitted to it, per se, but he will assert to this day that he never failed a PED test. In 2018, ESPN's Jeremy Schapp tried to pin the Cubs slugger down on the key question of use and not the evasion of never testing positive. There's a difference between not testing positive and not doing it. And you're saying you didn't do it? Um, once again, you know, I never text any, you know, positive. So. There is, by the way, evidence that he did also test positive. But for our purposes, we could say the three players above judge have all admitted to taking PEDs or in Sammy Sosa's case, there's abundant, credible evidence that he did. Or we could just say Aaron Judge is the AL king. That is true. That is fine. But please don't say the others are only linked or suspected or accused of having juiced. 
And the reason I think it's important not to say those wiggle weasel words or, well, it's not this reason. He cheated! Oh, whatever. Oh, come whatever. on, he took whatever. the steroids whatever. forever. Whatever. Whatever. His head expanded. Yeah, I agree. He it's used 24 hormones uh, more than he ever did a, in that one that's year. True. McGuire picked up the phone and cried his eyes out because Maris's mother, and, 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 my wife, hey, I'm sorry no, I cheated after he took everybody's hand. You are nuts. And that was Ramsey McMullen, professor emeritus in the classics department at Yale University. No, it was Christopher Mad Dog Russo. But that argument, that's not why I think it's important to get the phrasing and the concept right. I don't do it to render judgment on Bonds or McGuire or Sosa. I, I remember going out to Shea one afternoon where Mark McGuire went yard hard against a facing in the outfield. I think he hit one in each half of a doubleheader. Let me tell you, it was damn exciting stuff. Lots of sportsmen over the years have put lots of substances in their bodies. No one ever hit a home run in almost every other game like Barry Bonds did. No one this side of Babe Ruth brought as much excitement upon striding into the batter's box as Barry Bonds. Ruth later revealed to be on scotch and hot dogs at the time. There are a hundred kind of tedious arguments about ethics, morality, hypocrisy, and comparison between eras that could play out over the question of if Bonds, McGuire, Sosa, and their ilk should be rewarded with accolades or induction into the Hall of Fame. I have opinions on these issues, not nearly as strong as Chris Russo's opinions. I, by the way, don't think I have as strong an opinion on nuclear war, yay or nay, as you heard Chris Russo expressing there. But my point is to say, and I have always said that we as presenters of information have to present it as accurately as possible. And accurate means not merely not inaccurate. Alleged to have taken steroids, say it like it is. So we will say, Aaron Judge, 62 home runs, more than any other player, other than those who admit that they took PEDs or won't assert that they didn't. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the single season record holder for Inside the Park, Outside the Box thinking. Joel Patterson, just senior producer, lays down the sacrifice bunt, but won't sacrifice his principles to do so. Michelle Pasca, CEO of Peachfish Productions, knows that the MLB leader for most balks in a single season is Dave Stewart, set in 1988 when he was a member of both the A's pitching staff and the Eurythmics. I found that. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, And thanks for listening.